Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and relove our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Are we recording? Just yep. By the way, sound quality fine? Yeah.
You happy with it's just the content that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, we're running low in languages, you can probably tell. That was my attempt to say in Arabic, Achtung, Achtung. Uh, that's the sound that rang out across North Africa when uh, Rommel and Eighth Army chased each other backwards and forwards, isn't it, James? Yeah, oh, well, yeah absolutely. <laughs> but what are we going to do when we've run out completely? Are we going to go back to Achtung and start I think we're going to have to, yeah, yeah. Right, so for those of you new to our podcast, and welcome all new fellow travellers, and wondering what on earth you've stumbled into, this is We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast that will not help any GCSU student looking to develop a linear and coherent argument. Last night, my daughter said, I've got Nazis tomorrow. <laughs> she was work. obviously really thrilled about yeah, that. Yeah, thrilled about her GCSEs. Um, I'm Al Murray. And I'm James Holland, trying to bring the smallest semblance of good sense to proceedings. Good luck with that, with your <laughs> wobbly lower lip. Now, we get a lot of correspondence, I'm pleased to say. Not all of it corrected me on my knowledge of the war in the East. Lately, we've had a couple of requests from listeners with one eye on their summer holidays. Vincent wrote to say, thoroughly enjoying the podcast. Very interesting and entertaining. We like you too, Vince. Do you have, or could you recommend, a good World War II reading list? And Dean Richardson also wrote to say, other than James's new book, you've got a book out, James. Yeah, yeah, I have actually. It's called Normandy 44, and it's available in all good bookshops now. And, uh, and other bookshops, not just the good ones. Yeah, really um, bad bookshops as well. <laughs> what Second World War history books would you recommend? I've read and enjoyed Anthony Beaver's and Max Hastings' collections. Well, books... Yeah, um, well, I mean, you know, Summer Holidays, it's great reading non-fiction, but um, I quite like reading novels as well, mm. you know. And, yeah. Um, I'm really sad. I've just finished the last Bernie Gunter novel by right. Philip Kerr. Unfortunately, Philip died really young of cancer last year. And um, so he has this um, private detective, well, he's a, he's a detective. Sometimes yeah. he's in the German police force, sometimes he's in the SS, but he goes through from before the Second World War, during the Second World War, and after the Second World War. And it's sort of done like a kind of Philip Marlowe character. So he's a kind of sort of, you know, noirish detective, wisecracking, yeah. kind of unlucky in love, you know, likes his liquor and his cigarettes and all the rest of it. And actually they're brilliant on audiobook because the guy who reads them is an American and he reads it in, they're all written in the first person and they're written he reads it in an american accent unless they're a german in which he puts on a german accent oh. apart from bernie gunter who obviously yeah. is german but is read as an american if you sort of mean and it shouldn't work but it absolutely does and they're completely brilliant but anyway i think of the i think it's 13 or 14 novels that every single one is an utter joy from start yeah. to finish but if i was to pick out one to get started it would be prague fatal prague fatal. fatal it's just totally sounds like a cologne fantastic sounds like aftershave i'm wearing <laughs> my prague fatal this evening <laughs> <laughs> yeah it does a bit i'll give you that but, but actually it's all about hydric <laughs> right oh, right okay <laughs> so uh, the association for me isn't there yeah. at all right but yeah that's absolutely true okay well i would recommend if we're going to do fiction um, there's a novel about the Battle of Arnhem um, uh, from the late 60s that I remember reading uh, 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 ages ago. And I've, I've gone back to it because it's a very evocative called uh, The Cauldron hmm. by a guy who called himself Zeno. So it's it's right. it's um, a, a, an anonymous uh, a novelization of his experiences in Arnhem. And there's a character in it, unsubtly named, called Bridgman, Lieutenant Bridgman, um, uh, <laughs> who who at the end of the book... Goes, it won't refuses to be evacuate, evacuated. Has to go back, and and he's and he's 
likens himself to you know um your brother would know this uh the the romans on the defending the bridge on the tiber um, right and all that stuff. Yeah, and, but I and don't know. You know, no, no, no. There's no point asking you about that. And uh, um, uh, but it's uh, he was in, and he was in the Pathfinder Company, who landed first on 17th September. This this guy, and 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 so it's about that really. It's about being in the Pathfinder Company, and their eureka. They lay their eureka beacons, and it's all going fine, and they think it's all going perfectly, and then obviously it unravels and goes to shit. And the story follows, I think his section as they're killed one by one in the battle. And it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's not an eyewitness account. It's not, a, it's not really, but it, but it is, it's an incredibly evocative account of the battle. And in fact, it turns up in, it never snows in September. There's a, he, he quotes a bit. in. So that. was the author there? Yeah. Yeah. So he's a bit like Alexander Barron, you know, yeah. who wrote, wrote from the city from the plow. Yeah, yeah. He, it, he was in the path. He was in. So he's in the Pathfinder Company. It's you know, if you could, I don't know if it's in print still, but it's worth a read. It's if 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 you like if you like your Arnhem, it's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm you know, I love reading novels about about, about that. I mean, anything about the Second World War, but um, but novels, but they have to be really well researched. Yeah, because there's nothing more annoying. Yeah, well, he was there. You know, that's the, yeah. So the, so, so there so is he that was kind their of book. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, again, a bit like that Alexander Barron, which I just yeah. mentioned. You kind of get that sense of it, don't you? Um, but I suppose, you know, there's some, there's been some absolute belters over the last few years, haven't there? There's been some really good memoirs, actually, before it's too late. Um, and one I, I would always recommend is First Light by by Geoffrey Wellham. Yeah. You know, which is just an absolute cracker. And actually, I was sort of I was, I was sort of slightly involved in that. Not in writing, obviously, that was all Jeff. But... Um, so way back when I was researching my own novel, uh, which was set in the in the, um, the backdrop of the Battle of Britain, I, so I, I started kind of going to off, interview lots of veterans. Yeah. This was the the first bit of historical research in the Second World War that I ever did, and actually, book did eventually come out. Um, but one of the people I wrote to um, was Geoffrey Wellham. I saw him on a list somewhere. And a letter came back from Mullion in Cornwall. Yep. So I went off to go and see him. And I had this fantastic day with him. It was it was in um, 2001, I think it was. And um, it was just brilliant. And and we went and met in his local pub. And you could still smoke in pubs in those days. So there were ashtrays and things. And he was using his pint and his ashtray to kind of simulate his Spitfire and a Messerschmitt 109. <laughs> so there I was in my spit and this 109. It was just exactly how you imagine yeah. when you haven't done this before, what it's going to be like having a, a, a kind of one-on-one session with a former yeah. Battle of Britain fighter yeah. pilot. Um, and he was completely brilliant. Anyway, in the course of the conversation, he said, oh, by the way, um, one thing you might find quite useful. Back in the 70s, I was going through a very bad divorce and, you know, my business had gone, gone tits up and, um, you know, I was sort of sitting around thinking about the time when I'd actually done something half useful. Um, and I started jotting down a, a few thoughts. Anyway, there's a sort of, you know, ended up being a little book kind of thing. Um, and he said, there's a, there's a chapter in it, which is sort of a, effectively a day in the life of Battle Britain fighter pilot. You know, would, would that be interesting to you? And I went, yeah, it'd be absolutely amazing. Anyway, then, um, and and, uh, uh, and I went and had a coffee at his house and we talked about it a bit more. And his house was absolutely tiny. I mean, he was poor as a church mouse. And afterwards, I wrote back to him and said, you know, it's great seeing you. Thank you so much for all your time. You know, you mentioned this this chapter. Any chance of seeing the whole book? And literally three days later, the manuscript of First Light arrived in the post. Wow. And it wasn't a spare one. And it, it wasn't was the book, manuscript. It wasn't recorded delivery. It just had a few stamps on it. He'd obviously taken to his local post office in Mullion and put it in the post. Still had his little sort of penciled annotations, sort of badly typed. God, it was the whole thing. Anyway, I read it, and of course it was absolutely amazing. Um, and at the time, before I'd become kind of full-time historian writer, um, I was working for Penguin Books. 
So I gave it first to Roland White. Yeah. And he said, well, I absolutely love this, but this is not the sort of thing I can do. Give it to Elio. Elio uh, Gordon was Anthony Beaver's editor um, on Stalingrad and various others. Yeah. Um, and Elio read it and absolutely loved it. And we wanted to put a, an offer to him straight away. And the person who was going to sign off the offer was about to go on holiday for three weeks. So if we hadn't got an answer from him that afternoon, it would have been another three weeks. And I couldn't get hold of him. And I rang up my wife, Rachel, and I said, God, you know, we've got to get hold of Jeff because it's really exciting. You know, we want to publish a book and everything, but we need to find him now. And she goes, well, why don't you just ring the pub? So I did. <laughs> I rang the pub. And I said, Jeff, um, Penguin want to publish. And he just went, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I think, it was, I think in the first decade of... Um, of this century, it was the best-selling military book in the UK. Wow. And, you know, he got himself a girlfriend and a kind of Rover 75 with leather seats and kind of upgraded his house and, you know, <laughs> was sort of fated quite rightly. And he got, you know, quite a lot of... Um, you know, he, got, he had quite a lot... You know, he was quite famous by the yeah, end of his yeah. life. And sadly, he passed away last July. And that was yeah. just such a loss when he went. I couldn't yeah. believe it. Because even when he was getting older, he was still Jeff. Yeah. And Jeff was, you know, he, he'd earned the right to not give a shit about anything or yep. what he said. And he yep. just said what he thought. And he was completely brilliant and really good fun. We 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 remain, you know, good friends right until the very end. Brilliant. So, yeah, so First Light by Jeffrey Wellham. And a book that would accompany that would be Jeffrey Quill's memoir about yes. the Spitfire. Um, uh, which, I again, I don't Sly know. Sly from if Merlin, it, is that him? Or was that Alex Henshaw? I can't remember. That, that's not him. I think his is just called Spitfire, Spitfire. I think. Yeah. And 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 he was the he was Supermarine's second test pilot. So Mutt Summers flew the first plane, and then Quill took over basically. Yeah. And it is the most. I mean, if you re, if what you want is I took the Mark fourteen up and I was not happy with the ailerons. If that's what you want, as you lie by a swimming pool, that's the book for you. I mean, it's the exhaustive and arguably exhausting detail on testing every single possible version of Spitfire. So well worth the read. But there are also some absolutely amazing memoirs out there. Obviously, yeah. uh, George MacDonald Fraser. Yeah. Which is oh, God, brilliant. It's just extraordinary. Totally book. brilliant. But yeah. then, there's, then there's Memoirs of Rifleman Balbi, which is also absolutely yeah. brilliant, about a guy in the Rifle Brigade going up through Italy. Brilliant, brilliant yeah. book. And one I'm quite new to is um, And No Birds Can Sing by Farley Mowat, who is a Canadian. I mean, quite famous in, Can- in Canada yeah. as, a, as a writer, but goes all the way through Sicily and, and, and Italy. And it's, a just, it's just fantastically good. Yeah. It really, really is. Another one I've just um, uh, come across, Burt Styles. Um, um, what's it called? Serenade for the Big Bird or something like right. that, or, or Bluebird. Serenade for the Big Bird, I think it's called. And it's all about being a bomber pilot. Um, and it covers the D-Day period. Right. And it's just this brilliant, brilliant memoir. It's it's really absolutely in the moment. And the amazing thing about Burt Stiles is he's one of the very, very few people who's a, who's a bomber pilot, reassigns to become a fighter pilot, and then gets killed in November 1944 as a fighter pilot. Gosh. Having done the hard bit, which is being a bomber pilot, which is much more dangerous than being a fighter pilot. Gosh. And, and it's really, really fantastic. What's that called again? It's called Serenade to the Big Bird, I think it is. And it's, it's, a, it's a slim volume, but there is, there is a kind of real raw honesty to yeah. it. And it is absolutely beautifully written. Yeah. It's, really, it's, it's funny, it's dark, it's moving. And, and apparently it's a complete classic, but I've only yeah. I only literally just discovered right. it, and it's still in print. It's, and it, in the same category print. as that would be Keith Douglas's Elevators M. Oh God! So because yeah. I think I think the, which we've talked about before, because I think the thing that's really interesting is those book those things that are written at the time. Yes, they haven't had the what he's not 
done is gone away and like and gone dear audience my dear reader kind of restructured his memories yeah. or 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 also held back from some things possibly because there's things you don't want to share and yeah. uh, and all that sort of thing or and and the, because because of course veteran testimony is really important but but a lot of it a lot of it the, the further it gets through you know so if a guy writes a thing basically when he's on furlough before he's then killed doing the next thing which is the same thing you know with with with, with Keith Douglas's stuff it's because he's killed on D plus one, isn't it? Uh, uh, D, no. Eight for June, yeah. Eight for June, two. two. But it, it, it means that that memoir is that the paint's still wet on it when he's when he's killed. So the, yeah, it, and, and I'll, I have to I'll serenade for the big bird. Okay, very right. amusing. Just say one last thing about yeah. that Alamante Zemzo. So um, it's such a good uh, book. Um, Stanley Christopherson is Edward in Alamante Zemzo. Right, he changes all the names. Yeah, but they're very sort of thinly disguised. And he's quite rude about Stanley, even yeah. though he was his um, second in command in A Squadron at the beginning of the Normandy campaign before he died. And um, because Stanley has this kind of very easy charm and Keith Douglas has this massive chip on his shoulder, yeah. social chip on his shoulder. Yeah. And um, what's really funny is what Stanley really objected to was not the portrayal of him as being this kind of sort of slight, you know, so charming he's light. Yeah. Is the fact that he criticises dancing capabilities. <laughs> But he's Amazing. very, very funny as yeah. well at yeah. times. Yeah, it's a great book. The whole thing where he just turn, moving. goes goes turns up with his unit, and they're like, "Well, we, you're not meant to be here." And, he, and those amazing sketches stick him in as well. Yeah, stick him in a tank. Okay, so right questions, questions. Um, uh, Hugh Wilton. Um, I tell you what. I tell you what. Hugh hasn't done is started with. Uh, I really like the podcast. So I'm a bit, I'm a bit ambivalent about reading this out. But there we go. <laughs> What's called it's a mistake by the Germans? Question mark. To get in, you had to be one an officer, therefore smarter than the average. Well, I, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's I'm not sure about that. Contentious, but. but and two had already escaped to attempted escape, so practiced all in one place. Well, yeah, it is a peculiar thing. The idea that you put all all your eggs in one basket, isn't it? All your, as it were, all these people and create an escape culture is a very, it's a very odd thing, isn't it? That that they would do that. Because you'd think dilute their efforts by spreading them out across the system rather than... Well, I suppose uh, I suppose if you spread them out, then you've always got someone who's really ace at um, escaping in every single camp. Yeah. And so you might have a ma- massive amount of escapes where if you put them all under one roof, then at least there's only going to be one escape attempt because they'll yeah. all be in it. Yeah. I mean, the, the it's interesting, isn't it? Because Colditz has just completely gone off the radar. But I mean, I, don't, I, I remember in the sort of when I was growing up in the 70s, Colditz was like everything. I mean, it was oh, Colditz TV programmes, it was yeah. Colditz board games. Board game. You know, when I was being packed off to prep school you know we always used to go oh I've got to go back to Colditz yeah Colditz Colditz, is, Colditz was in the vernacular it was in the vernacular so, uh, boarding, just, my, it, my boarding school as well it, you know, after and Colditz. it isn't yeah. it isn't anymore and and, it's and it was political too because Airy Neve yep. um, who was Thatcher's um, uh, uh, sort of fix it man who the IRA murdered um, yep. he was he was Colditz wasn't he Am yes right? yes yes yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. Yeah. so Colditz was front and centre in in seventies culture, I mean, it really. It and really Douglas was. Bader wasn't Douglas so, Bader? Yeah, Bader was sent to Colditz in it. So, so it, for the uninitiated, Colditz is a castle, and it's a big old castle, and a big old of, pointy German uh, castle. So, if you, and it just says Gothic script. Yeah. The so, if you, you think of the it. Disney castle, right? You know, at the end, well, the Disney quite cartoon, so many turrets. but painted black. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. Overlooks a river and with a with it's a swastika flag, right? And it's got a river and cliffs and everything. So, if you think of like. Disney gone bad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> really thick stone walls and yeah. impregnable. And they fill it with 
um, and there's French prisoners there as well, aren't there? And yep. there's some Dutch people think, right? They fill the Germans fill it up with with serial escapers and sort of celebrity prisoners and and kind of um, yeah, the sort of uh, I mean. And it's interesting cross, it's that Roger Bushel. Well. It's interesting that Roger Bushel, of course, Big X, who drives the Great Escape, didn't end up there actually. Um, and maybe things would be would have turned out quite differently if he had. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but but it's basically it's sort of like your super cooler, isn't it? You yeah. put all your um, all your bad eggs in one basket. But we, I mean, we grew up with it being. I mean, we were talking in the last podcast about sort of um, Russians against you know or Soviet Union against the West. Actually, I mean. We sort of viewed it as a sort of byword for kind of uh, um, repression and kind of being yeah. incarcerated and grimness and all the rest of it. Actually, it's pretty cushy. Well, they, they it got just, worse as the war progressed, but yeah. then it got worse for all Germans because there wasn't much food. Yeah, but but actually, you know, compared to what the Russian prisoners had to go through, it was oh, it was kind uh, of holiday well, camp. Yeah, exactly, because the R- Russian prisoners were either starved or worked to death. I mean. Th- not to make no bones about it. I mean, you you look at Colditz, and the, my, my memories of it is, you know, they, them doing plays and dressing up and tunneling out during a play, or or using a play to. It's the, the amazing story about and I think and building gliders. Yeah, and build, they build a they build a fucking glider. Right? I mean, how do you I do mean, that? I still don't understand how that happened. Well, I mean, how do they get the kit? Well, to well build how a are glider? there any floorboards left in the place? It's always they get the it's there was the pinching. Fl- I mean, because that's the other thing with the Great Escape. There's only it? so many times you can sort of shuffle and whistle and kind of sort of look up at the ceiling, <laughs> isn't there? You know, when you haven't got. Any floorboards? The, who is it? I can't remember if it's Neve who who actually walk, they make a fake uniform and he walks out. Yeah, out, he does. He gets he walks out. out with a cardboard pistol and he walks out yep. the door. Yeah, he does. And then I think he comes back. Um, yeah, because I've read his book. Yeah, yeah. I had to do a, a new introduction to the Folio edition I found yeah. a few years ago. Yeah, but Colditz is yes. It, it, uh, and the thing is, I think Colditz. I think it's got that it's got 70s world war ii glamour is what it turns into is one of those things yeah. glamorous about the second world war because it is jolly chaps and all that sort of thing and there is the, there that is, guy from the man from uncle in the that's TV right yeah, yeah yeah dave mccallum and dave you've, McCallum. Because you've got this but you've got this <laughs> thing haven't you though that 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 with the escapes that the escapees that we've been there was a lot of attention given to that and it was an officer culture and if you're if you're other ranks you're not you, you, you're probably working, and you're you've been working on a farm or something, and you've been put to work, haven't you? That's what happened. Yeah. So it is a bit weird that that people fixated on the officer escape culture, and then Colditz is its sort of high watermark. Yeah. It's a bit it's a bit peculiar because it's not it's not most people's experience of being in the bag. My mate Guy Walters, uh, my great pal. He yeah. Um, I went so, to his lecture at the REF club. Yeah. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. So he um. So two things. Some years ago, he went. He emailed me. He said. Jim, I'm in I'm in Colditz and I'm actually looking at the big house on the opposite side of the valley. It's for sale for one euro. Should we buy it? <laughs> but anyway, we didn't buy it. A euro? Well, it was up for one euro. It was, it was quite decrepit, but it was really seriously big old house. Yeah. And uh, we thought it'd be funny. Um, but <laughs> but we didn't. But a, a few years ago, he was talking to some bloke in Colditz and he said... Oh, you ever ever spoken to that bloke just down the road who's got that big barn full of stuff? And um, a guy went, no. And he goes, oh, I'll take you down there now. Anyway, so they went down. There's this sort of creaking old barn doors, lots of dust and all the rest of it. And leaning up against the wall was one of the original railway station signs, Colditz. So it's a big old chunk of hardwood, black-rimmed, black-gothic, you know, black right it's not gothic, actually, but black writing, white background. And um, so the guy goes, how much do you want for that? And the guy goes, 
couple hundred euros. Guy just went, done. So buys it. Oh, wow. It costs him, I think, 250 euros to, to, get, it, home, to yeah. get it home. It's so freaking heavy. It then costs him 300 euros to actually get it on the wall. But it is now on the wall in his old kid's playroom. It's absolutely brilliant. Amazing. He's got photos of these sort of British prisoners of war Next standing the on the station with the sign. It's absolutely yeah. amazing. Incredible. Well, yeah. so there we are, Colditz. Um, so it wasn't a mistake because Guy Walters was able to decorate his uh, kid's <laughs> playroom. Okay. <laughs> all good things, exactly. all so good things come it. to those who wait, right? <laughs> okay, Pete B., um, again, uh, without praising the podcast, so I think we need to have a word with our listeners, says, without fighter escort, were bombers doomed once they attacked, but once attacked by fighters? And if so, weren't, weren't their defensive guns pointless? Now, that's really a question about... Um, American bomber effort, isn't it? Because yeah. the American bomber effort, the decision was that what you were going to do is a, a flying fortress. The clues in the name is you'd have aircraft festooned with machine guns, thirteen of them. Yep, um, uh, and they'd fly. In, they'd fly nice and close to each other. And the idea was any German fighter that wanted to to get in amongst the bomber stream was going somewhere very dangerous. Exactly. So the, the principle is the same as the convoy. Safety yeah. in numbers. You're all tight together. Yeah. You can protect yourself. And in fact, actually, I've written about this extensively in another book that's available in all good and bad That came shows. out last year, though, didn't it? <laughs> yes, old news, oh, James. Oh, so whatever. <laughs> uh, but anyway... Big, so, but, your book, Big Week. My book, Big Week. But um, it, it, it proved a kind of sort of false... Uh, um, tactic to be perfectly honest because so the, so the eighth air force first came over comes over in 1942 and then they get really badly sidetracked by going over to the the mediterranean lots of them get sort of you know rerouted down to the med and fighting in mm. north africa and all the rest mm. of it so it's not really until the kind of summer of 1943 that they really get going and by that time they've come up with the operation point blank which is the uh, the plan to destroy the luftwaffe as the number one bombing priority for the allies yeah Harris sort of goes along with it and says, yeah, yeah, whatever, and then just bombs his own thing. But the Americans are absolutely all out for, for, for uh, the Luftwaffe. And the, the absolute key distinction, distinction is the, the, the British are bombing at night. Yes. They've been bombing at night pretty much from the start. Yeah, as have the Germans, to be uh, fair. Uh, and the Germans. But, because but it's less dangerous. It's less, it's less dangerous. It's, uh, it is also less accurate. And the, and, um, Although, by the sort of second but, half of well, yeah, that you, is starting well, to change. Well, yes, exactly. So, so the, the, the bomber command undergoes this massive sort of um, reorganisation, shakedown, um, uh, kind of has a nervous breakdown because they, they're not getting it right and they know the they're not. The report they have, of yeah, summer exactly. of 1941. They have to admit Can't it. Can't hit a barn door at 20 yards. That's right. Well, it's, what is it? There's some percentage not even within 10 miles and they, yeah, and they count yeah, that yeah, as hitting the yeah. target and all sort of nonsense. Right? So, so the American, and the Americans have the Norton bombs the, the Norden, bomb Norden bomb site, of course, which they've spent, which they spend billions on. Yes, and it's developed in the 1920s. So it's, yeah. it's kind of, you know, and, it's it's really, and and that's a computerized bomb site. And the big yeah. idea is you can land a bomb in a pickle barrel and all that, all that, all that, stuff. All that stuff. And in fact, they almost spend as much money on that as they do on the atom bomb. I mean, it, it, it's that important to them. And they they get this idea. I think that, the B29 project costs more than the atom bomb. Yeah, 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 it does. Yeah, that's that's quite right. Yeah, but the, but the big idea the big idea is they can bomb accurately. They can bomb in daylight because you can see the target. You can see the target. You have a lead bombardier, so that they form up on the lead on the lead aircraft that that that's picking the target and bombing on the target. 
and they're accurate they're, and they're going on and the american philosophy is that you bomb ball bearing factories you bomb messerschmitt factories yes you bomb you you bomb oil the synthetic oil factory you bomb the things that will bring germany to its knees more swiftly whereas the bomber command have gone well we're bombing at night and they call it dehousing and what we'll do is dehouse the workforce and disrupt because they will try and hit the factory but we'll what we'll do is we'll bomb where they live Dehouse them, disrupt, yep. disrupt. Well, the point is, if you destroy, if you destroy huge rafts of, of major modern cities, then their ability to kind of wage war is going to be massively reduced. That's the, and, and they are absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, they is. But so the American the American bomber stream is like a convoy. It's bristling with machine guns. The idea is that any approaching Fokker Wolf, Messerschmitt, whatever, gets shot down before it gets near the bomber stream. And it's a spectacular number of bullets that are flying around. I mean, yeah. it is absolutely, you know, 13 times, you know, 385. 50 calibre. 50 calibre machine guns, which pack a punch. I mean, you know, 50 yeah. calibre are, you know, 0.303s, which we have in our, uh, initially in our, our, well, it's what we have in our Lancasters, but what we have initially in our sort of Hurricanes and Spitfires and Battle Britain are, are real pea shooters. Yeah. But 50 calibre really can pack a punch. It's a really effective kind of air-to-air weapon with high velocity, rapid rate of fire, mm. all that kind of stuff. So, but. Yes, but. It but, doesn't work. So, for instance, the, the, the I mean, 8th Air Force's big first effort is the is the Schweinfurt Regensburg raids. Yeah, in August 1943. And those raids are what? They lose 19% on that. Shot down, right? And Schweinfurt, so it's, it's over six. They're in Bavaria, aren't they? So they've got to fly yeah. all the way across Germany, yes, and, that's and the all the way back without fighter escort, yeah, in daylight. So what happens is the RAF um, fighters and the American fighter planes escort them as far as their range will allow them, so into France or whatever, yeah. and then they kind of head home, and and suddenly it's on you're on your own, son, just at the point where the defences get get much worse. Yeah. Well, and also. The, the German fighter um, uh, uh, German fighters don't come to play until the British and American fighters have gone home as well. Yeah, quite sensibly. Well, why would you bother? No, exactly. When you're coming up against sort of superior yeah. fighters with yeah. superior fighter pilots, so so it's a real problem. And um, and and this is the kind of nub of the whole issue because they need to destroy the Luftwaffe before D-Day, yeah. and they need to destroy their aircraft industry. But the aircraft industry is deep inside the Reich. Yeah. So how do you square this peg? And they have another crack at it in October. They go back to Schweinfurt, and again they lose another sixty planes shot down. And it's you know, and I think they lose something like one hundred fifty-eight in seven days. One hundred fifty-eight seven you know heavy bombers at this time. 8th Air Force has around, you know, 600, 700 bombers on the go at any one time. So that's just like a huge like amount. A quarter, that a is totally unsustainable, even when you're kind of American, you're mass producing these things like yeah. they're going out of, you know, going out of fashion. I mean, you know, it's just unsustainable. And the way these bomber bases are done is, is you know, you have this bomber group of whatever it is, three squadrons on this base. And, you know, and everyone knows everyone. It's like a little village, little town all of its own. So when you come back and you're losing kind of, I don't know, 15, 20% of your crews in one mission. Yeah. The morale effect, the debilitating effect on morale is absolutely enormous. It's completely unsustainable. Okay. So they have to solve this problem of what you do with, with uh, to get a long-range fighter. And, of course, the answer, of course, is the P-51 Mu- yeah. Mustang, yeah. equipped with the Merlin engine. And they discover that not only does its performance massively improve, because the Allison engine, which powers a P-38 twin-engine fighter, and the early Mustangs is a total dog, um, but once you put the Merlin 60 engine in it, it 
totally transforms it. And actually, the higher it is, the higher the altitude, the greater the performance. And they suddenly realise, well, hang on a minute, let's put a, what happens if you put an extra fuel tank behind the cockpit as well as in the wings? And they go, well, that's no problem at all. And they go, well, hang on a minute, what happens if you put two 75-gallon drop tanks? And drop tanks are ones that you, you have, and once you've used them, you drop them. Mm. Uh, and so they're not causing so much drag and stuff but you know so you use those to get you to germany and then once you get into action then you drop them immediately they just you press a button it falls off into the ether um, and off you go with the rest of the tanks the rest of the fuel you've got in it and once you've got those fuel tank in the fuselage plus two under underside the wings that means you can do 1450 miles which means you can well you go beyond berlin yeah. and back and that is a total game changer so this they discover this in the kind of late summer of 1943 they then i think the first is the 354 fighter group is the first to be equipped with mustangs the mustang bees which are these sort of merlin pad or actually they're, they're now they're packard built yeah. under license yeah. um uh mustangs and they first go into action i think if i remember rightly the 10th of december 43 and then they're starting to build up in January and the second fighter group, the fourth fighter group, the legendary fighter, fourth fighter group, gets gets them equipped by the end of February 1944. Yeah. And by the middle of April 1944, they've they've absolutely, you know, they've got enough. They've won air superiority. D-Day can go ahead and, you yeah. know, everything, problem yeah. solved. Yeah. God, that was a long-winded answer to that one, wasn't it? No, but... It? It, no, but, but it, it's really, but it, really but interesting. But a good answer. And the thing is, there's film, isn't there? The, the Memphis Bell movie, that uh, the David Putnam film that people will maybe know, yeah. is based on... I really like that film. It, yeah, uh, but the, the real footage of the actual film crew that went up. If you want to, if you want to um, well, basically um, wonder whether you need fresh underwear, what, because it's extremely frightening, that film, where they're attacked by, um, uh, by, the, by the Luftwaffe fighters, herring in as fast as they can from out of the sun, um, the guys at their gun stations firing. If you really want to, if you want to shit yourself, that's um. Well, and the other interesting thing about it is actually you think because of all this armory that 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 they should be more effective, but. You know, if you're a waste gunner, for example, you've got this little window out to the elements. And yeah. just imagine this. You're at kind of 18, 20,000 feet. It's minus 45. Um, you've got a sort of heated suit. But what happens if one of the wires gets shorted or something yeah. like that? You know, you're absolutely stuffed. You're actually full of, you know, a focker wolf going past you. goes... Phew! Like that, and you, you've missed it. You know, it's gone. Even if you're in the tail section where you have to sit actually on a on a little sort of bike seat um, with your knees tucked, your legs tucked backwards mm. under your thighs... Um, you have to sit there. You've got because you've got a twin machine gun. Even though you're at the end of the of the plane, actually, you, your your vision is really, really limited. Yeah, it's absolutely pathetic, frankly. And and while there is a naught point naught naught two percent that a shell from an anti aircraft gun will hit you. Yeah, the chance of you being hit in an attack by a fighter plane is something like one in four. Yeah. So, you know, if you've got to do twenty five of these missions. You know, the odds are just of you surviving are just, you know, you will get hit at some point. Yeah. And it's just whether you manage to make it back or not. Right then. Well, time for a quick bit of R&R. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. You're listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We haven't suddenly turned into a podcast about cupcakes. By the way... Welcome to our new listeners. We seem to be gathering up quite a few stragglers who've lost their battalion. You're all very welcome. Keep your rifle clean. Morale is high and we're hoping to get you all home by Christmas. Uh, More (laughs) questions, James? Yes. um, 
Well, this is from Manfred from Gonagall. <laughs> Manfred von Gonagall. Good name. Was King Victor Emmanuel of Italy ever accused or referred to for potential war crimes as a result of his complicity with Mussolini's regime? More broadly, were there war crime tribunals mounted against fascist Italians? Well, the tribunals that were mounted were pretty sort of um, uh, like things that happened in the street and they ended up on a meat hook. I mean, the thing is, is... The thing is, is it because it, it, Italy, you know, changed sides because because the the Italians signed an armistice, signed an armistice, they became and, co-belligerents, and became co-belligerents, and this is uh, and that's before unconditional surrender becomes the um, yes, the, the be all and end all of the Allied effort, doesn't it? Um, no, it's after. It? It no, after? it's after, but it's unconditional surrender for Nazi Germany, but not for Italy. That's interesting. Yep, that's really interesting, isn't it? Mm. Because because yeah. unconditional surrender is agreed at the Casablanca Conference in January 1943. So Italian surrender, official surrender, although it's agreed in August, um, doesn't come into play until the 8th of September. So why is there an exception for the Italians? Well, because they're not as bad, you know. <laughs> they've still got a king. They've still got a king. They've still, they've still got, got, got king. king. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's interesting because Mussolini is never the kind of absolute kind of dictator that, that Hitler is in the same way because there is a king, you know, yeah. and he is answerable to the mob. You know, and this is one of the, you know, he, he always is, you know, that he can be overthrown at any minute, as is proved on the 25th of August 1943 when he yeah. is overthrown. Yeah. You know, so it's it's, it's an interesting one. And um, the truth of the matter is, is they are supposed to be co-belligerents. So they are, you, you know, the, the allies just cannot stomach them being allies, part of yeah. the coalition. Yeah. So they have to, they, they fudge it with this kind of terminology, which is you are a co-belligerent. So you're sort of on our side now, but we still don't like you. It's basically the, the kind of the subtext. Uh, and what is supposed to happen is that, that, that Monty has already landed with 8th Army at the, at the Southern Toe on the 1st of September. Then 5th Army under Mark Clark um, uh, lands at Salerno. And at that moment, the Italians are supposed to all come over onto the side of yeah. the Allies. But the Germans have smelt a rat, know exactly what's going on, and have got Operation Axis in place. Mm-hmm. And they've already streamed lots of German troops into it. And the moment the surrender happens, they just pour into all the Italian camps and disarm the whole lot. And all the Italians are so shocked by this and so not expecting it that they don't know what to do. And 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 basically, I mean, this is this is this is Captain Corelli's mandolin yeah, yeah, yeah. and Catalonia and all the rest of it. And so they disarm them. Um, and and what happens is uh, Marshal Badoglio and um, um, uh, Victor Emmanuel, they all they leave Rome. They sort of bugger off really quickly and head to Brindisi, I think it is. And, and you know, there they set up, you know, the Royal Army. And um, the, but he's forced to abdicate, isn't he? He's forced to abdicate. So that that is the kind of sort of the quid pro quo. And his son, who's a you know pretty feckless, useless individual, takes over as as king. Right. Excellent. Yeah, so that's what happens. So the long and short of it is that there aren't any trials because all the kind of big, big players are, are killed. So Pavolini is a, is a person who, who is the head of the fascist party um, after Mussolini is kind of captured and um, uh, put in Grand um, Sasso. And then he's sprung famously by Otto Scorzani and, yeah. and put back in power. But but he remains, even though Mussolini is put back as sort of you know head of state of the of the. Um, Socialist Republic of Italy in the north. Um, Pavolini remains um, head of the uh, of the fascist party. He's strung up at the same time and executed at the same time that they're because they're all captured yeah. by partisans. So they're trying yeah. to flee up up through the Alps. Yeah, the same okay. as Mussolini, of course. So yes, summary tribunals, as it were. Okay. Um, Jared Halliwell asks: Had Germany taken the time to build more tanks and armor beforehand, do you think this could have swayed the outcome of the war? Well, well, the, well, the thing is here. It's opportunity. All the um, economists would call this opportunity cost, wouldn't yeah. they? 
because if you're spending money on one thing, you can't spend it on another. This is only so much money, right? Yep. It's but this is explaining pocket money to my kids, right? Yeah. If you've spent the money on the jock ice, you can't have the packet of crisps, right? Yeah. And this applies to German economics before the Second World War as much as it does to anything else. Because if they had built more tanks and armor beforehand, they wouldn't have been able to build more submarines or aeroplanes or whatever. This is the yeah. point, isn't it? It is. I mean, I, I think their kind of biggest mistake entering the war is that they don't build enough submarines. Yeah. I mean, I would have just completely binned all those pocket battleships and battleships mm. and heavy cruisers, the Bismarck and the Gneisenau and the Scharnhorst. I just wouldn't have even gone there. I'd have, you know, part of the Z plan, which is the pre-war naval plan, is to build um, 300 U-boats. And I would have made that my absolute top priority rather than making a massive... Um, battleship which looks great and makes hitler feel like you know like he's a naval a, power uh, yeah uh, uh, but, An but imperial but, naval power but as that- as 1917 proved the only way they got close to winning the first world war is by kind of you know strangling the supplies crossing the atlantic and that's how to defeat the allies the western allies in in the second world war in the coming war and they don't do that and and so you have this ludicrous situation that in the summer of 1940 when they have you know most of the convoys going across the atlantic are unescorted a bit like the bomber forces going to regensburg in 1943 before they They've learned the hard way. Um, uh, there are no more than 14 U-boats operating at one time ever in the entire Atlantic. And and you can argue and argue very convincingly and that the Atlantic is the key battleground of the entire Second World War because that is where supplies go, whether they're going to the Soviet Union, whether they're going to Britain, whether they're coming, you know, whatever. They're, you know, everything goes through the Atlantic to get to Britain, which mm. is the launch pad, or goes through the Atlantic to get to the Soviet Union. There was no alternative. So that has to be, you know, and in the moment it goes beyond a kind of short, sharp six-week campaign and goes into a long attritional bloody war that's going to last the best part of six years, it's all about supplies. And supplies go through the Atlantic. And they just don't prioritise that. And it's a really, really bad mistake. But the other interesting thing about it is... is it's not a question of having time to build more tanks. They don't have the capacity no. to build yeah. more tanks because... What's really interesting is we always talk about the Nazi war machine in the Second World War, particularly in the Blitzkrieg years, when in actual fact they're not very machine heavy. And this is one of the kind of ironies yep. about the Germans. is that, and, and you can find all this stuff out by looking at the Whitaker's Almanacs of the 1930s, which lists how many vehicles there were per population and all sorts of other useless, pointless information. Except it's not useless and pointless if you're me or, or some other historian and you're interested in all this stuff. Because what you learn, and I can't remember the figures precisely, but I think it's something like there are 106 Italians for every vehicle in Italy, despite them having Fiat and Alfa Romeo and things. Um, whereas that figure is 47 in Germany, despite having Mercedes and BMW and Audi yep. and Hawk. Um Whereas that figure is 14 in the UK, it's eight in France, and it's three in the USA, which is probably no great surprise there. But France is the most automotive society in Western Europe by a quite a big margin. Britain is the second. Germany is the third, but at 47 compared to 14 and eight. So the question should really be, had the UK taken more time to build Take the time to build more tanks and armor beforehand. Do you think this would have swayed the outcome of the war? Well, maybe. Yeah. But yeah. one of the problems <laughs> that the British have is they have the 1930s Road Traffic Act, um, which restricts the tonnage of lorries yeah. on the roads because they want they want freight to continue to use railways. Right. Yeah, and so they limit the weight of lorries that you can have on British roads, 
which means that when you get to the Second World War, there just isn't that infrastructure for building large vehicles and large tanks. And it's exactly the same issue that they have in Germany, except much worse. Mm. Because if you're not a very automotive society, you can't just click your fingers and suddenly create lots of factories. And that means you don't have mechanics who have the knowledge. You don't have garages all over the place. And you don't have, you don't have sort of petrol stations. And yeah. you don't have people who know how to drive. Mm. You, you can't magic it, which is why when they attack in May 1940, for example, with their 135 divisions, only 16 of them are motorised. Mm. And it's why they use almost double the number of horses in the Second World War. They but, do that's also, but that's also why they do that concentrated punch, because they're, yeah. that's their, their only option. It's their only option. It's, it's, it's the tip of the spear. Right. The okay. So, is- now, I um, was digging through um, I had a, my Second World War toot. And um, I found this, I was given ages ago, originally sold for five shillings. And this is a thing called Ten Chapters. It's a small, black, slim black volume, 1942 to 1945. And this is, this this little book is a short and personal account of my activities in outline from August 1942 to May 45. I took command of the Eighth Army in the Western Desert of Egypt. This is like a who am I question. Western <laughs> um, Desert of Egypt on 30th of August does 1942. He, wear a beret? he does wear a beret. Has he got a little moustache? The German War ended on the 8th of May 1945. It has been a very long, it's been a long journey from Alamein to the Baltic Sea. It's Monty. It's Monty. At various stages in that journey, the Prime Minister, Mr. Churchill, wrote a page in my autograph book and recorded his impressions in his own handwriting. These pages have been photographed exactly as they're written and they form the main feature of this book. The autograph book is, is itself in my possession, as I suppose, of great historical value. How very modest of you, Monty. So this is a, this is a book that's a facsimile of of the notes written by Churchill in Monty's autograph book. So that's interesting. The yeah, an autograph book is a nerd. And various autographs and signatures. I love seeing all those. I, you know, you, that you've got Patton's signature, Omar yeah. Bradley's, Ramsey's. I mean, they're all there, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, so it, it, chapter six. Um, uh, so this, uh, well, so before that, you've got chapter five is the run-up to D-Day. So you've got, um, autographs from the planning meeting. So Smuts is in here um, mm-hmm. from South Africa. McKinsey. Oh, what does it say on that? There's a great line on that page, the one with Smuts' signature. Uh, good luck in your new hunt, Smuts. Oh, that's amazing. That wasn't the one I was thinking Field of. Field Smuts. Well, that's, that'll do, that, wouldn't it? That'll do, though, um, yeah. uh, at, at Churchill, Chapter 5, on the verge of the greatest adventure with which these pages have dealt... I record my confidence that all will be well and that the organisation and equipment of the army, and he runs out of room on that page, so the army goes down the side a little bit, will be... Um, uh, oh, gosh, and I can't read his handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> Churchill's handwriting is... That's a man who's doing a million documents a day and having to just scribble on them. Some poor sod decipher yeah, I recall it. my confidence that all will be well and that the organisation and equipment of the army will be worthy of the valour of the soldiers. There we are. And then the page when it gets to Germany. Germany's And in the genius of their chief. There we are. It's brilliant. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, no, that, why was the other smuts one? And you've got when they get to Germany, Germany's in red pen at the top of the page, as a, as a little, <laughs> yes. a little uh, 
edition. And he took the... Yeah, no, this is it. This yeah. is it. Okay, June the 12th, 1944. So it was in the um, beginning, so it may continue to the end, Winston Churchill. And so it will. Smuts. Yeah. Oh, and so and, it will. And then there's the autographs of the Germans who came to um, uh, negotiate the surrender on the 3rd of May in 45. He, he got their autographs. I mean, that's, that's niche autograph hunting, isn't it? Oh, hey, look, they've even gone to Gaul. Yeah. The excellent James's speech, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I am, just because he's written something quite nice in there. Really? Yeah. De Gaulle's written something nice. To General Montgomery, the excellent armies of of victory. 15th of June. Yeah, but it's like a visitor's book, though. You're never going to write, God, that breakfast was shit. Yeah. You're a bit of a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Bed was uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, 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 that we have here. We So we've um, General Admiral von Friedenberg, uh, Friedenberg, General Kinsel, Rear Admiral Wagner, and Major Friedel, who are the people who came to the TAC HQ for the, yep. for the surrender. Underlined German officers sent to my HQ by Field Marshal Keitel to discuss surrender. Date 3rd, May 1945, place Lüneburg. So that's the the very end game. There's there's famous photos and um, just I think it's just Wilmot's account of the Germans turning up and Monty putting on a real act because he'd been refusing to shake the hand. Yeah, refusing, and he'd obviously been rehearsing that moment in his head for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's an intriguing little book. Yeah, it's fantastic. Right. I've never seen that before. Okay, well now then, ease young Holland. Time for a pint of dark mild, which I'm guessing means we've run out of time. God, you really could just keep yammering on this well, for hours. that's the plan, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <shh>. <laughs> anyway, if you missed any of the books we recommended, we'll tweet them out again soon and do let us know what you think of them if you do get around to reading them. Brilliant. Get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag WeHaveWays or using the snappy email, WeHaveWaysPodcast at gmail.com. See you all next time. Yep, cheerio. Bye.